Good morning, and welcome to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. We're your hosts, Elliot Simpson, Annabelle McRae, and Thomas Chan. Beyond the Headlines is a weekly current affairs show that aims to make public policy discussions more accessible to you. We take you beyond the headlines of our daily news, bringing you access to current leaders through in-depth interviews. You can join us in the conversation by tweeting at Beyond Headlines. That's B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. Taiwan is known globally for their unique fusion of cultures, extensive period of colonization, and ongoing territorial dispute. Over the past decade, Taiwan has grown to become one of the largest economies in Asia and most advanced producers of technology globally. In today's episode, we meet with two experts to discuss the history, culture, and security of Taiwan. Our first guest joining us today is Dr. Shelley Rigger. Dr. Rigger is the Brown Professor of East Asian Politics at Davidson College and a Senior Fellow in the Asia Program at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. So I was wondering if we could start with uh, China's civil war. As far as I understand, the civil war between the Kuomintang or KMT and the Chinese Communist Party after a pause during the Second World War kicked back off in 1945, which then resulted in the KMT's defeat at the hands of the Communists after which point they retreated and settled on the island of Taiwan. As long as I have that right, then my first question would be, Professor, why didn't the Chinese Communist Party invade Taiwan outright back then when they had the upper hand? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. And I think probably a lot of people in Beijing are asking them that themselves that question right now. <laughs> why didn't we invade Taiwan? Why didn't we finish that job when we had the chance? Because I think the reason they didn't finish the job in the very moment was that the forces that the KMT had with them on Taiwan were formidable. And they actually did have a couple of really grim uh, battles on the islands between the mainland and Taiwan, including uh, Jinmen Island. There was a really terrible battle there. And so the military challenge of actually fighting all the way to Taiwan was huge. Also, I think the the Red Army and the PRC government were exhausted and facing massive, massive domestic challenges. Like how in the world are we going to restart our economy, restart our, you know, we have to reinvent the political system And on top of everything else, there was already a lot of worrisome kind of rumbling on the military front. So they paused. You know, I I think their plan was to finish the job, but they paused. And one of the things that happened during that period of pause was the North Koreans invaded South Korea. And as you know, the US and the UN. Um, decided to prevent North Korea from unifying the Korean peninsula under a communist regime. So you have the Korean War. And the U.S. took the Korean War as evidence that communism was on the move in Northeast Asia and that it needed to take a strong stance against the expansion of communism, including to Taiwan. 
So after 1950, the U.S. was actively involved in Taiwan's defense. And so the possibility for finishing the job was pretty much off the table after that. So you mentioned the Korean War and the international sort of community obviously responded to that, including the U.S. Then what was the international reaction to the end of China's civil war and the establishment of the KMT on Taiwan? Most Western countries continued to recognize the KMT state, the Republic of China, which had been the ruling state in the mainland since 1912 as the legal government of all of China. And they treated the communist government and the PRC state as a kind of temporary problem that would eventually be solved. Over time, little by little, countries began to recognize the PRC. The U.S. was one of the last to do so. So in 1972, the U.S. negotiated a normalization process with Beijing, which included de-recognizing the Republic of China and recognizing the People's Republic of China. But the U.S. only finished that process, the U.S. and, and China only finished that process in 1979. So by that time, most countries in the world had already de-recognized Taiwan in favor of the PRC. Did the KMT then have to essentially create Taiwan from scratch? I mean, how did they go about that? It's wildly impressive when you think about it. Yeah, so I think there are really two parts of the answer that both need to be taken into account. The second one that I'll talk about is the KMT's own policy success. Uh, But the first is what was Taiwan like when the KMT got there at the end of World War II? So at the time of the Japanese surrender in 1945. And the answer is Taiwan was a surprisingly well-developed little island for Northeast Asia in 1945 as a result of 50 years of Japanese colonial rule during which the Empire of Japan had kind of tried to use Taiwan as proof of its own prowess as a colonizer. So, you know, back in the 19th century, if you were not colonizing others, chances are somebody had their eye on colonizing you, right? And so after the Meiji Restoration in 1868, the Japanese government made it its mission to prove to the European and uh, also to the US that it could not be colonized. And one of the ways you prove that you can't be colonized is you colonize others. So uh, Japan accumulated some colonies back in the 19th century, including Taiwan, uh, and then made a priority of showing how much it could accomplish through the development of Taiwan. So Taiwan was already actually in surprisingly good shape in terms of infrastructure, human capital, human health and education, and even uh, some basic industry. So when the, when the KMT arrived, uh, Taiwan was not a basket case. <laughs> but then the KMT did a lot with the resources that it inherited from the Japanese colonial government. They were, a acutely aware that they had failed in the mainland and that they had lost China to communism, which was an enormous 
humiliation and catastrophe from their point of view. And they were determined not to do it again or not to let that happen again in Taiwan. So they undertook a series of economic reforms in beginning with a very effective land to the tiller land reform that really increased agricultural productivity and output very rapidly in the 1950s. And that uh, increase in productivity then created capital accumulation and a labor force for industrialization. And they moved pretty smoothly into the period of industrialization, import substitution industrialization in the, in the 60s and a little bit in the 50s. And then uh, very quickly also transitioned the economy from import substitution to export-oriented industrialization. So they had very good economic policy and very successful economic policy, which enabled them to build Taiwan's economy into the powerhouse that we know it to be today. And then in terms of civil society, because I know that Taiwan started out under a pretty intense authoritarian rule under Chiang Kai-shek, how did that process go then to transition towards the much more free democratic society that we know as um, Taiwan today? Yeah, so the the very government that did all that uh, good stuff economically that I just described was a single party authoritarian state and extremely ruthless against two kinds of dissidents. Those it believed were sympathetic to communism. And so the, the KMT always worried a lot about communist spies in Taiwan. And those it believed were trying to undermine the KMT's mission of taking back mainland China. Uh, And the main type of person who would be trying to undermine that would be someone who wanted Taiwan to be its own country and separate from the mainland. So Taiwan independence. So it was a very, um, it was a a kind of right-wing military authoritarian single party (laughs) uh, polity But beginning in the 1970s, we began to see a growing willingness among people in Taiwan and also Taiwanese living outside of Taiwan, especially in the US and Canada, a greater willingness to challenge the KMT and to begin to make demands for two things, really ethnic justice, so equal treatment for everybody in Taiwan, those who had come after 1945 and those who had been there for generations, and democracy. So in the 1970s, the the KMT tried to kind of hold the line on democratization, but that became more and more difficult, both because of the internal pressure or the pressure from Taiwanese and overseas Taiwanese, And also from the dawning realization that the rest of the world was moving beyond the Republic of China and the rationale for that single party authoritarian state, which was to achieve the destiny of, you know, restoring the ROC on the mainland, that rationale was just evaporating because the dream of recovering the mainland was evaporating. So what you see in the 1970s is a little bit of uh, liberalization, although at the time it didn't really feel that way. But in the early 1980s, in 1984, an American scholar wrote 
an article and it was called from hard to soft authoritarianism question mark so this is like 3 years before the breakthroughs started coming at a breakneck pace and even then you know the 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 boldest statement about change in taiwan was from hard to soft authoritarianism question mark so we didn't you know it was hard to see it coming from the outside and i think it was even hard for people within taiwan to see it coming but in fact the uh foundation on which the single party authoritarian state was built had uh weakened beyond repair and when uh Jiang Kai-shek died and was succeeded a couple of years later by his son Jiang Jingguo i think Jiang Jingguo looked around and realized we can either allow these changes to happen and try to control, control and contain the pace and magnitude of change or we're going to be swallowed up by the PRC because the world is not interested the US is not interested in providing military protection to another pariah dictatorship and so in 1987 Jiang Jingguo lifted martial law and after and in 1988 he died and was replaced by a president Li Denghui who basically decided that his legacy and also the basis of his political survival would be democratization and so you know it's this combination of like external pressure internal pressure from the movements for democratization within Taiwan society and that's very important dimension but then also a political leadership that made the decision not to let the country burn but rather to concede to the demands that were being made on it for democracy. Chiang Kai-shek's legacy, is it similar at all to the way that Mao's legacy exists on mainland China? I think it is similar to what Mao's legacy would be if if the PRC were a freer country. Okay? Right? Um you know the the Chinese Communist Party has just produced a new statement on party history and their treatment of Mao is very cautious you know even though in some ways it seems it maybe even a little bit more cautious than the the last uh you know uh summary of party history uh back in the Deng Xiaoping era when the calculus was you know Mao Zedong was 30% wrong but 70% right which is not a bad record right so uh i think mao's legacy is in some ways similar to uh jiang kai shek's in that he was a military leader and a political leader he made some uh massive and uh homicidal mistakes but he also had some achievements you know they they're they're both very mixed i think where perhaps they they have the most overlap is in their megalomaniacal personalities and their um stubborn and uh self and almost narcissistic ruling styles so some of the mistakes that Jiang Kai-shek made he made because he refused to see the reality in front of his face and he risked 
Taiwan's survival in order to preserve, uh, you know, sort of the fantasy of his own destiny as a as the person who was going to unify China. So in some ways, I think they do they do overlap. But of course, in Taiwan, we talk about all this constantly and and without fear. That's not the same in the in the PRC, unfortunately. Now I know over the years there have been many, uh, let's say, friendly attempts by the mainland to get Taiwan to to come back. Most recently, however, those those efforts have, have turned to be quite hostile. And I know that we're going into a the political climate in between the two is is quite charged. I guess the question would be, what caused this? Is it is it as simple as the mainland just sees Taiwan as a breakaway province and it wants it to come back? Or are there deeper forces at play there? You know, I think Beijing has moved a lot. Back in the, you know, before World War II, Mao Zedong was quoted as saying things like, you know, all of those Japanese territories can go their own way. Korea, Taiwan, who cares? So, you know, I'm not sure how long he really and how serious he was about that, but certainly uh, the obsession with unification, with bringing Taiwan under the PRC flag is something that has long roots in the mainland, but also has intensified pretty steadily over the last 70 years. And I think it's partially, you know, initially it was like, we got to finish the civil war, as you suggested at the beginning. But it has also become, I think, a sense of the U.S. is preventing China from recovering part of its territory. And, you know, some people don't like the words reunification or recovering because the PRC has never governed Taiwan, right? The PRC was created after Taiwan had been separated already from China for 50 years. And there was just that brief little period in the late 40s where they were under the same flag. Um, and the, and again, that was the ROC flag, right? Not the PRC flag. So, but at any rate, I think a lot of what drives the the determination to solve the problem of Taiwan is the sense that that only because of U.S. interference is Taiwan able to maintain its separation from the PRC. So it's not just getting Taiwan back, it's also pushing back the United States from a position that is somehow humiliating to the PRC. So I think that's a big part of it. And then in the last 20 years or so, the PRC leadership, the Chinese Communist Party leadership have made Taiwan, a central part of their legitimacy strategy. So they've basically told the people of the People's Republic of China, you know, it's super important that we get Taiwan back. And so now, if they fail to be acting toward that goal in in some way, or heaven forbid, they actually lose the ability to even hold out the chance of, of unification in the future. I think they believe that they will be punished by their own citizens because they've, you know, they've made this a litmus test for themselves. 
I mean, current politics is the product of history and history is the product of stories. If, if you could wrap up in one sentence what Taiwan's story has been up until now, how would you do that? Taiwan has been subjected to a series of foreign governments, each of which has tried to remake it in its own image, and each of which has failed to do so because the energy and uniqueness and distinctiveness of Taiwanese ways of living emerge and overthrow every attempt to remold that human community in the image of a colonial power. And that was one sentence. We appreciate it. We appreciate the brevity. That is what we always go for. Having discussed the history of Taiwan and its wider context, my fellow producer Annabelle McRae continued the conversation by delving into Taiwan's culture and the similarities and differences it has with the mainland. Thank you for coming, Dr. Riker. I would first like to hear about your personal experiences with culture in Taiwan and how you have seen culture manifest in Taiwan. So I had a student in my office today and he he's trying to think about how he might spend some time in Taiwan next summer. And one of the things he's interested in is religion. And I said, you know, oh, Taiwan is this unending cornucopia of interesting religious activity, practice, variety. So one of the things that you just can't miss when you go to Taiwan, and I don't mean you shouldn't miss it, I mean you cannot miss it, is the ubiquitous religious energy that's all around. There are many different religions in Taiwan that are very active and important. The one that is the mo- or the two that are the well the three that are the most evident everywhere are Taoism, Buddhism, and what we might call traditional religious practice. So a kind of syncretic mix of a lot of different traditions. And part of the reason that you can't miss this is that not only are they the religious structures, you know, the the temples that all of these religions, especially the last one create and use, not only are they gorgeous and spectacular and colorful and impossible to mistake for anything else, but they are also often very noisy. And if they're not making noise, they still smell good, right? Because burning incense is a huge part of all three of those religious traditions. So when you're walking around, even in a big city in Taiwan, you're hardly ever out of nose shot of something where people are doing religious practice. So so that's definitely the most ubiquitous and unavoidable cultural practice that one encounters in Taiwan. But then, you know, there's lots of art. Uh, There's lots of public art in Taiwan, some very interesting architecture that, you know, the Taiwanese government in the last 20 years or so has invested a lot in improving the physical infrastructure, including the kind of spiritual qualities of the built environment 
in Taiwan. So, so there's art as well as religion. Well, that's so fascinating. I wanted to herald back just a little bit to what you were discussing with Elliot and the very extensive history of colonization in Taiwan. Have you found that culture in Taiwan is a hybrid of these different cultures and it's possibly a response to that colonization that has occurred in the past? The waves of colonization for Taiwan really begin with Chinese coming one by one from the mainland in the 17th century, mostly. There were already people there, the indigenous people of Taiwan who do not have ancestral roots in mainland China. So in a sense, the settlers from the mainland were kind of the first colonizers in in that they were displacing and interacting with indigenous Taiwanese. Then there was a brief period of Spanish and Dutch colonial attempts, but I don't think that they were really long enough to leave a lot of cultural roots, although they did leave some physical infrastructure. There are still buildings left from that period. And they also affected the economy of Taiwan and the economic development there, improving agriculture and so on. And then, you know, the largest influence in Taiwanese culture is certainly from mainland China. But in Taiwan, we kind of differentiate uh, Chinese culture into different kinds of Chinese culture or different local origins. So the main languages in Taiwan, besides the indigenous languages, are Hokkien or Minnan, so a dialect from mainland China's Fujian province directly across the Taiwan Strait from the island, and Hakka which is, or Kujia, another Chinese language of a group of people sort of all over the place, although uh, most numerous in Southern China. So within the Minnan speaking community, there were also historically big differences between sort of Northern Fujian and Southern Fujian. So in Taiwan, you know, historically, it wasn't sort of, we are all Chinese. It was like, I live in this village and we are Hakka and you live in the next door village and you are Minnan from Fujo and we actually want to kill you. <laughs> or, you know, we may, we maybe we don't want to kill you, but we definitely do not want you letting your pigs into our forest. We will take your pigs because you're not like us, you know? So I think to say Chinese culture it might make more sense to talk about Chinese cultures, different cultures from the Chinese mainland, all mixing uh, in Taiwan, but also many of them retaining features that are you know, quite specific. So especially the Hakka in Taiwan have a strong sense of their collective identity even now. And then you have Japanese colonialism. So from 1895 to 1945, and the Japanese cultural influences in Taiwan are very evident. Everybody takes their shoes off when they go inside in Taiwan. The Taiwanese tea ceremony is a kind of amalgam of Chinese tea practices with the Japanese tea ceremony. Japanese food is really integrated with uh, Taiwanese cuisine and some of the very best Japanese food in the world can be had in Taiwan. And then, you know, the ROC, the KMT also brought influences for sure, including the dominant language today in Taiwan, which is Mandarin. So I think you can see, you know, the sort of overlay of all of those layers or waves of settlement and colonization in the culture of Taiwan today. But the one last thing that I would say is also Taiwan is very international. So its culture also embraces aspects of global culture that I think make it especially spicy. 
Moving more into this division between older and newer generations in Taiwan, have you found that they approach culture differently? Does this manifest regarding perspectives on the government and politics? One of the most interesting things I have ever read was the manuscript for what is now a book. It's an anthropology book, and the research method that they used was to interview women about my age, so women born in the early 60s to early 70s. And their mothers, who were born mostly in the 40s, and the difference in the life course of one generation, mother to daughter, was just staggering. The mothers were born into an agricultural society, very patriarchal, very traditional, and their daughters are highly educated. They live in an industrial, a post-industrial. You know, Taiwan was. Industrializing when they were children, and by the time many of them became adults, it was already a post-industrial economy where a lot of those kind of patriarchal traditions still persist in people's minds and kind of way of living. But they are very challenged by the urbanization, industrialization, and the sort of other kinds of social transformation. And then you add the generation that would be. You know, if if daughters in that uh, volume are about the same age as me, so born in the sixties and seventies, if we were to add to that mix our daughters born a, between say nineteen ninety five and two thousand five, or you know some range like that, their life is yet another quantum leap beyond what we've grown up with. So in Taiwan, you find a lot of young people who are really, really, really interested in issues like uh, social justice, LGBTQ rights, you know, feminism, environmentalism, lots of things that even their mothers sometimes struggle with a little bit, right? And their grandmothers just cannot understand at all. So this is a society that has gone from an agricultural society with a highly traditional, highly patriarchal, overwhelmingly rural population in 1950 to you know a service-based economy, post-industrial, entirely urbanized, and absolutely exposed to every imaginable global. Influence by 2000. So yeah, there's a lot of difference. And one of the things that I think is really interesting when you asked about politics, young Taiwanese are much more motivated by the social issues and issues of justice, environmentalism, that kind of thing, than by economic development. So the sort of high priority that their parents, so my generation, placed on you got to get a good job, you've got to make more money, you've got to have an apartment, you've got to you know meet all of these economic and financial milestones. The younger generation is sometimes skeptical of whether or not those financial milestones are really necessary and whether you know that makes for a good life. There is this idea in Taiwan, actually, was borrowed from Japan, Xiao Xing, and it it's very hard to translate. But basically, Haruki Murakami, the Japanese writer, is the one who kind of coined and popularized this idea, and he said. It's when you get home after a hard day of work and you drink a cold beer. So the joy and pleasure and satisfaction that we can get from small things 
And this idea, a lot of middle-aged Taiwanese were really horrified. It's like, why? You're giving up. You're not trying. You know what? What do you mean you're satisfied with a cold beer at the end of a long day? You know, you should be pushing harder. For a lot of young Taiwanese, it's like the planet cannot support any more of this accumulation of material everything. We need to find our joy internally and in the small pleasures of life. So I don't know if that's exactly political, but it becomes political because it it defines the priorities of the state away from pounding away for economic development or national security and toward goals like uh, environmental protection. For sure. Well, that's so interesting to hear just the great differences that occur in such a small amount of time between these different generations. This brings me to the final question for the interview. So I just wanted to ask you, what are some of the factors that shape daily life in Taiwan? And to what extent does the threat of China shape daily life? For most people, the biggest challenge is just making a living. And the problem is, and this is a problem shared by many developed countries, and I expect that you will have some sympathy with this as residents of Toronto, the jobs And a lot of the most interesting cultural opportunities are in one or two large cities in Taiwan, both of which are incredibly expensive. So in order to access the best opportunities, you have to find a way to live in this incredibly expensive place. And so there's a rat race in Taiwan that consumes many people. And I think is part of the reason why the idea of the cold beer at the end of a long day has appeal for many young people is they just think, you know, we're never going to be able to win this rat race. So why don't we just give up and enjoy our life in some smaller way? And so there have been people moving out of the main big city, Taipei, and looking for places where they can make a living, where they can get by, but they don't have to spend and participate in that rat race. As far as how much uh, the PRC and the pressure of, you know, that whole political issue weighs on people. I think after 70 years, it's impossible to think about it all the time, you know? So most Taiwanese don't think about the mainland very often. Uh, I was watching John Oliver recently, and he did a section on Taiwan, and he included a little video of a guy working a food stall, you know, in a night market or something. And somebody asked, are you worried about it? And he said, you know, I'm I'm worried about my food stall. You know, I don't have time to worry about that. That said, it's not as if people in Taiwan are unaware of the danger that they face. They are certainly very much aware of what is happening and the pressure that they're under. But I think they believe that it would make no sense for China to actually make a military move against Taiwan. They don't think that they're going to give the PRC a pretext to attack them. And they don't think it makes sense for the PRC to attack them without a pretext. So they figure they're okay for now. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today, Dr. Rigger. I know that both uh, Elliot and I greatly enjoyed today's discussion. Well, me too. Thanks a lot for the opportunity. And I look forward to listening when it comes out. Many thanks once again to Dr. Shelley Rigger for joining us. Now, having covered the history and cultural context in Taiwan, we'll turn it over to our fellow producer Thomas Chan, who welcomed an expert to discuss the security situation in Taiwan and Canada's place in all of this. Thanks, Elliot. We're joined today by Professor Gordon Holden, 
the director of the China Institute at the University of Alberta. And among his many diplomatic placements as a Foreign Service Officer for Canada, he served as Executive Director of the Canadian Trade Office in Taipei, Taiwan. Professor Holden, thank you for joining us. To start us off, I'm wondering how you view the current security situation concerning China and Taiwan. In recent months, China's increased military presence surrounding Taiwan, including with more frequent air patrols in and surrounding Taiwanese airspace. What do you make of all of this, and should we see these increased military measures as more as political posturing, uh, perhaps a bargaining chip with the U.S., or could it be a prelude to a much larger and perhaps even more open conflict? Absolutely. Uh, and thank you for allowing me to join in this podcast. I'd submit it could actually be all three. In other words, China is flexing its muscles, its strength, its capacity, and certainly the PLA, PLA Navy, Chinese Air Force, have the capacity to subdue uh, Taiwan. They want to develop that and have that ready as a as a tool should they need to use it. There's also an element of political posturing in that uh, they are demonstrating unhappiness with the United States, Japan to some extent, and others in the Western countries that are they feel are, are developing too much of a political relationship with Taiwan. Something's beginning to approach a formal recognition of Taiwan as a as a as a sovereign state, and so this is a means of 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 warning uh, Western states, including especially the United States, of course, um, to beware. And it also meant it's meant to cow Taiwanese authorities uh, into avoidance of uh, anything that might approach a formal declaration of independence, which is one of the triggers for war um, in in the view in the eyes of China. And then I wanted to ask, too, about the role of the upcoming Winter Olympics in Beijing. Do you think China might hold off on any further escalations until after the Games are over? I'm thinking of a similar case of when Russia invaded Crimea just days after Russia hosted the 2014 Sochi Olympics. Or do you think the Winter Games aren't too relevant to the issue of Taiwan right now? I think the Olympics are important. China really puts a great st- stand status by holding those games successfully. It's a question like this Summer Olympics in a way of China demonstrating its uh, prominence globally, cultural diplomacy, if you wish. But I don't think that the Chinese are are bound for uh, an invasion in the near term. Um, in the long term, who knows? Um, I think what's rather um, happening is that uh, the Chinese establishment, let's say, obviously, Xi Jinping, foreign policy establishment, military establishment, are fundamentally conservative. You have not seen a pattern of invasion of neighboring states. You see uh, China engaged in building up its power uh, to the point where it now begins to see itself as the equal, co-equal of the United States. Um, China knows that an outright invasion of China has huge risks. Um, The number one job of the Communist Party of China, in my view, as self-defined, is regime survival. And Venture a military venture, which they could probably succeed in military terms, unless there was a vigorous defense of Taiwan by the United States, something which is likely but not certain, um, has its own risks. But the greater risk is a wider war involving the United States. It's not something that either side would seek, but sometimes war finds parties when they are not keen to do so. And I'm thinking of 1914, where various governments, multiple governments in Europe, um, found themselves in what they thought would be a short war or making a point and ended up in a four-year-long slog that devastated Europe to the point that it never regained its 
global status that it had prior to 1914. So I think that there is, uh, there's no doubting the determination of Xi Jinping and the Chinese government to regain Taiwan. I just don't think that they're on the cusp of an invasion, uh, given all of the risks and given their inherently cautious nature. You mentioned 1914 there, which leads into my next question. And so given this continuing escalation of the conflict, do you think there's a higher chance for miscalculation? There is a real risk of miscalculation. And I think that that is holding um, all three parties back. The three parties, of course, being Beijing, um, leery, in my opinion, wisely so, of engaging in a, in a conflict that would mean a confrontation, a military confrontation, at the minimum, with a superpower that still has, in my view, superior military capacity, although the West Pacific is a long ways away from the U.S. mainland. Um, I think caution by the United States, and we've seen this both on November 7th, when U.S. Um, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan uh, made pointed remarks about the desirability of the status quo. And this is, was reiterated um, on uh, November uh, 15th by President Biden, who spoke positively about the status quo. Uh, for Taiwan, fortunately, I think in, China, in the Taiwan president, um, we have a, a rational, cautious leader as well, obviously under pressure from her um, more strident supporters of Taiwan independence to push uh, actively uh, for greater space for Taiwan, a closer political relationship with the United States, but also um, wary of and bearing the responsibility for what might happen to her island nation as well. Um, Taiwan will be, I can guarantee, under strong advisement from Washington to avoid precipitous action because one of the uh, criteria by which Beijing has defined as requiring military intervention is a formal declaration of independence on the part of Taiwan. So I can guarantee you that the US mission, this was happening when I was there managing a Canadian mission during a time of tension, when Chen Shui-bian was president, a far less cautious leader, uh, the US, my US counterpart regularly had to lecture Chen Shui-bian uh, in effect saying, uh, you don't have a blank check for U.S. blood in the defense of Taiwan. And, the, um, and I think that similar messages will be being passed now to the Taiwanese. I think a more receptive audience in the case of the current president of Taiwan. And then, so you've just mentioned the virtual U.S.-China summit that occurred in November. And a large part of that was downplaying tensions on Taiwan, or at least in statements. And so how do you see this rhetoric being compared to what's happening over the skies in Taiwan with China's military exercises? Should these statements be seen in parallel with those instances or are they more a juxtaposition to what's actually happening? I think it's very complicated. I think one of the problems that people assume, not, not, not uh, our listeners probably, but many people assume that uh, because Xi Jinping is such a powerful leader in a troika of, with Mao Zedong and, and Deng Xiaoping, as the three most powerful leaders of the PRC to this point, that um, every single thing that happens there is under his control and that he can dictate all of the outcomes. Uh, in reality, in my opinion, uh, he has to deal with a strong nationalist urge uh, amongst particularly PLA, but also young Chinese nationalists who take at face value what they've been taught in school, 
that Taiwan is an inalienable part of the mainland, that it is the sacred duty of the People's Republic of China and of the PLA to regain control of Taiwan against the rebels and separatists there. Uh, and so he has, in my opinion, uh, a tricky course uh, that he must follow. Um, my opinion, understanding, as do the top leadership, that uh, adventurism in terms of an earlier precipitous attack on Taiwan has untold risks for, uh, uncalculable risks for, for China. On the other hand, he can't walk away from the premise that uh, his task and that of the PRC is eventually to regain control of Taiwan. So that means that he has to carefully combine and, and make sure that PLA is in line with showing a resolve to regain Taiwan, but not pushing uh, the situation over the brink into open conflict and war. So that is a, a tricky a tricky handle. And in the case of the United States, Biden has pressures from the Republican Party, but also from uh, a host of human rights advocates, et cetera, who are uh, mindful that in Taiwan, there is a thriving democracy, which has a values similarity to the United States. I think actually Taiwan, in one recent estimation of the democratic character of states, outrank the United States as a more democratic place than the United States. So there is a, a convergence of values and, and political philosophy that's there. And yet Biden must also, in my view, and has to and will resist um, a, those who would like to see uh, Taiwan in effect formally recognized as a sovereign state, but aren't mindful enough of the, of the risks. Um, beware of the curse that may all of your wishes come true. And I think one of the consequences of any formal recognition of, of Taiwan as a separate entity would mean a minimum of breaking of relations with China and a confrontation of, of, of great severity. So you make some really interesting points there and moves into my next section about Canada's role. And I'm curious to see how you describe Canada-Taiwan relations, how it's changed over time, and what some of its most significant issues are. I think what was particularly important is in the in the in the 1980s and in the 1990s, as the character of Taiwan began to change, its economy grew in reach and scope. Uh, Canada began to develop a uh, a policy of, of representation in Taiwan, beginning first with a an office run by the Chamber of Commerce, the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, but was funded by and in effect, largely directed by uh, the government of Canada. And this was gradually replaced by an actual uh, Canadian trade office, of which I at one point had the honor to, to head. Um, uh, that was in the early part of the century, and which had the, all of the characteristics of an actual embassy, except the name. Uh, it was treated with respect by the local government, not quite as an embassy by Taiwan, but um, they, we were given accorded privileges and immunities um, that were equivalent to diplomatic status. Um, we were able to conduct trade promotion. We dealt with Taiwanese political figures on a regular basis. We issued visas and passports. In effect, it was an embassy in, in everything but name and reported directly to Ottawa as did other embassies. Uh, that was a crucial distinction that allowed us to more directly on the ground pursue Canadian interests. And that is not that has not fundamentally changed. That trade is not insignificant. It's now dwarfed by a trade with China. But at one point in the early part of the century, we were exporting more goods and services to Taiwan than to India. 
Um, Taiwan with a population of just over 20 million, India with a population at that time of probably 1.2 to 1.3 billion people. So it's not insignificant. And uh, um, there was a thriving collaboration, which exists still between high-tech companies in Canada and, and Taiwan, sophisticated economy, educational links, et cetera, et cetera. In balance and in total, these interests uh, did not come close to equaling those of between Canada and the People's Republic of China, but they were significant and far more significant than our relations de facto with many, many other countries with whom we have um, uh, de jure formal diplomatic relations and uh, countries of larger uh, demographic size and where we have embassies, et cetera. So that relationship was not insignificant. Uh, and that's, I think, one of the things that's developed. There's pressure in Canada, as in the United States, to develop a more muscular political diplomatic relationship with Taiwan. My concern with that is not that we shouldn't do what we can do, particularly on the people-to-people side, the educational side, commercial side, but beware of the risks of something that approaches formal recognition. I don't think it necessarily does Taiwan any favors. I think that it puts at risk what others what others um, uh, uh, have done in, over the years in terms of developing a relationship we exist. So again, I come back to the status quo for all its flaws is about the best that can be, is the best can be expected in the current international circumstances. And then how should Canada-Time relations be characterized? Should trade be the lar- larger consideration or given the current China-Taiwan conflict, should security take a more important role? Well, in trade, there's something we can do about it. In other words, we can actively promote trade, we can send our business people there, we can send not too senior provincial federal officials to help promote that trade. We have economic um, dialogue with um, and trade dialogue with Taiwan that's important and needs to perhaps to be strengthened. Um, on the security side, there's much more limited. So number one, um, the future of Taiwan and its de facto, de facto independence, not de jure, de facto independence, is really something that whereby the United States, Washington and Beijing uh, will determine where that goes. Um, I can imagine a circumstance where, God forbid, you ended up with an open conflict. In that circumstance, it's hard to imagine that we would not, um, if it was a broad conflict, be involved um, with our U.S. ally. And for example, if there were attacks on Guam or on U.S. bases, uh, we would be obliged uh, by our, our NATO and NORAD responsibilities to come to the assistance of the United States. But that's a nightmare scenario, not good for Taiwan, not good for, for China or the United States, not good for the world. Um, so on the security side, at times, it might have been thought given to even selling arms to Taiwan, as U.S. has done. Um, I think that would be given the current state of kind of China relations are risky and Taiwan can get what it needs from the United States in any in instance. I think with, with Taiwan more need, needs more directly than security assistance for Canada is a strong bilateral relationship, support in international fora so that Taiwan should be able to play a more active role in things like the World Health Organization and specialized UN agencies, et cetera. I think it's that political diplomatic support, although it's very difficult and no guarantee of success, that's more important than the security side, which is dominated um, by the the United States. Uh, However, 
um, as part of our, uh, our alliance with the United States, we will, of course, periodically uh, take part in patrols with our warships, a handful of warships on the West Coast, um, in the Taiwan Strait, which is an international waterway, etc. But direct security assistance to Taiwan, um, I think, is unlikely, um, barring uh, a broad conflict, which would be, a, again, a not-to-be-desired result. And it's been a lot of talk about Canada's long-awaited and revised Indo-Pacific strategy. Do you see the question of Taiwan taking a larger emphasis in Canada's interests in the region? I think that this strategy, which I've not seen, which I'm of course aware of, uh, is partly a nod to uh, the U.S.'s, very much a nod to the U.S.'s own uh, desirability of view of the desirability of a broader Asia strategy. And I think I see it as that, a broader Asia strategy. And the word Indo, of course, is important uh, because it means a greater emphasis on India, on South Asia, on Southeast Asia. That's predictable. Um, however, and China must must be part of that. I think it'll be an effort to shift a little bit of attention away from just China. Taiwan, I think, would appear in that document as an, as an important uh, economy, important trade partner, etc. But the Taiwan PRC issue will be seen as a subset of the broader China issue challenge. Um, my own view is whatever strategy we come up with on Indo-Pacific side, it will be somewhat difficult to manage. Uh, the core constituents are really very different. India, while drawing closer to the United States because of what they, of their own fears of China, is a, is a fiercely independent state. It's regained its independence, after all, after a very long period of colonial status, and uh, it is not going to simply be told what to do by Washington. Other, others, such as Australia and Japan, are going to be more willing to follow the U.S. lead, as would presumably can if we were in such an arrangement. Um, but uh, we have our own national perspective. I think it'll be an important part of our foreign policy. But unlike Australia, we've got this direct U.S. connection, which is which is very strong. Economically, it's more strong, stronger than the U.S.-Australia relationship. And we have a European vocation, which comes from our own geography and our own past. So I see this as the, the Asia strategy dominates everything in, in Australia, although with its U.S. component added. I don't think that'll be the case for us. And I'm skeptical that in the foreseeable future, barring some overt Chinese aggression, that the Quad or the, the Indo-Pacific grouping of nations, um, the Western part of that, and, the, and, and its obvious uh, involving India, Japan, Korea, et cetera, would evolve in anything approaching a NATO or a military uh, grouping. I think it's rather going to be a, a very loose grouping of, of countries and a, and a Canada expressing a desirability of, of broadening our focus away from just on China to others. But China will keep bringing the focus back onto itself, in my opinion, because its rise has not been completed. It's still um, growing far more quickly than is the United States. And I think it will, and it's now, it, India has actually fallen behind. Uh, I can recall when India was three to four times as large economy. Now it's, it's one fifth of the Chinese economy. So I, I, I think that positing India or even Indochina strategy as a, a means to avoid uh, paying attention to China wouldn't work. I think China will keep pushing itself right back into the headlines and into our consciousness as a foreign policy challenge, whether we like it or not. 
So thank you. And as a final question, I want to touch on the fact that Taiwan is a democracy that's home to over 23 million people. And do you think the fact that Taiwan elects its own leaders in a democratic style um, plays a larger role in this conflict and as well as Canada and more broadly the U.S.'s interests in Taiwan? I think it's changed a lot when Taiwan became a functioning democracy. And there's no doubt about it now, even with political parties that accept losses in election somewhat more readily than, quite frankly, is the case in the United States, it seems. Uh, this is a democracy that is um, a, a of high standing uh, with full respect for for human rights, freedom of speech, freedom of media, etc. That changes a lot. And in the time days, let's say, in 1970, we established relations with, with, with uh, Beijing. Taiwan was a very different place. It's still claiming to be the government of all of China. It was autocratic. It was authoritarian. It was non-democratic. And I think that made that choice easier. Taiwan's made it more difficult for us now because it is a democratic state um, without international recognition, but with all the characteristics of, of a functioning and thriving democracy. It makes it more complicated for the United States, for Canada, even for Europe and for others to ignore Taiwan and to not provide it assistance it needs, and which in my opinion would mean as long as Taiwan didn't initiate a conflict, I think the odds are that the United States would, would be, feel obliged to come to its defense. And that would probably involve others and perhaps even ourselves. Uh, so that is an important fact that cannot be overlooked. It doesn't, however, over, if you believe at all in real politic, um, or the, just the reality of the, the uh, the deployment of forces globally, you can't ignore China. It's, it's not simply a question of finding the, the best country in a region and focusing entirely on that. You have to, if you're a country that's Canada, that's trade dependent and safeguarding our security going forward, you have to look at the, at the, at the, um, the power of states in any given region and globally and take that into account in your own planning and in your own foreign policy calculations and defense calculations. So Taiwan is a wonderful place. My time spent there running our office was uh, some of the best time of my life. Um, but um, ignoring China and ignoring its claims is simply not an option. It doesn't mean we bow to them, but to, to not pay close attention to what they're doing and what they're saying uh, would be an error. Well, Professor Holden, thanks again for taking time to talk with us. and. Thanks so much for a really interesting and enlightening discussion. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. Take care. Once again, that was Professor Gordon Holton of the China Institute. You've been listening to Beyond the Headlands at CIUT 89.5 FM. Many thanks to our guests for joining us to discuss Taiwan. Today's show is produced by Elliot Simpson, Annabelle McRae, and Thomas Chan. The views expressed on the show do not necessarily reflect the views of producers, CIUT, or the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. If you missed any part of the show, be sure to check out podcasts of all our episodes on our website at beyondtheheadlines.net, as well as on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you're a fan of our show or want to stay up to date with our policy issues in Canada, follow us on Twitter at BYOND underscore headlines. You can also check us out on Facebook and Instagram. Be sure to join us next week as we continue to take public policy discussions out of the hallways and onto the airwaves.